When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Claire Pooley about Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting. Claire graduated from Cambridge University and then spent 20 years in the heady world of advertising before becoming a full-time writer. Her debut novel, The Authenticity Project, was a New York Times bestseller and has been translated into 29 languages. Pooley lives in Fulham, London, with her husband, three children, and two border terriers. Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting is her second novel. I absolutely loved Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting, and it is on my summer reading list and is one of my June Buzz Reads picks. Both are linked in the show notes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Claire. How are you today? I'm really good. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, I have been looking forward to this interview for weeks because, as I told you before we started recording, Mary Laura Philpot had recommended your book when she came on my show. I immediately requested it, read it, loved it, and set out to try to make sure we could have a conversation for the podcast. So I'm really excited that you're here. Oh, that's so kind of you. Um, it's, uh, I, I mentioned uh, before we started recording that I always get a bit nervous leading up to publication. So hearing, hearing that you like the book really, uh, really helps with that. Thank you. Absolutely. And I've seen such wonderful praise and posts and everything. So that also has to make you feel good. Yeah, it's, it's getting a, a great reaction so far, which is, uh, yeah, which is fabulous. It's always, it's always nerve wracking putting your sort of baby out into the world. So, uh, so it's, uh, it's exciting. I can't even imagine. I think about that sometimes. 
because I'm not really a writer. I mean, I write roundups about books and review books, but I don't write myself. And I think it would be really hard to come up with something like that and then put it out, especially in today's world, just for everybody to then be commenting on it. Mm, yeah, you you have to, uh, I think you have to be quite thick skinned as, as a writer, because however many people love your writing, there's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be some people who don't. And that's just, that's just life. And you just have to learn to, to take it, uh, take the rough with the smooth. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into questions, I would love for you just to tell me a little bit about Iona Iverson's rules for commuting for those that won't have read it yet. Sure. Well, um, it's a story about a group of completely disparate strangers who have absolutely nothing in common apart from the fact that they share the same commute to work each day. So each of them takes a train from the suburbs of London to Waterloo Station um, every day, and they see each other on the train over and over again, um, and they give each other sort of nicknames. They make assumptions about each other. They imagine what each other's lives are like but they never speak because that's one of the sort of unwritten rules of commuting in London is that you never speak to strangers on on, on the train. In fact, you don't even make eye contact because that's just seen as being a bit weird. And then in the very first chapter, one of the characters who Iona gives the nickname smart but sexist manspreader <laughs> um, is uh, eating a fruit salad and he chokes on a grape and uh, nearly dies so so he can't breathe and another one of the uh, commuters who happens to be a nurse gives him the Heimlich maneuver and saves his life and that one incident then starts a chain reaction which gets this group of people talking eventually, and amazing things start to happen. Amazing things do start to happen. And I have a lot of questions about that aspect of the book as we go on. But I first wanted to ask you how you just came up with the general idea for the book and who inspired Iona. Oh, well, the idea for the book um, was, uh, was my own commuting experience, really, because I spent decades commuting in London. And and absolutely stuck to the rules, you know. And we're very, we're very buttoned up and repressed. <laughs> I think the British, um, no more so than on our commutes. And I remember one day seeing a guy on a, a London Underground, and he looked really ill. And he, as time, you know, as our, as we carried on this journey, he looked more and more ill, and he was sweating, and he was going green. And I thought, oh my god, he's going to be sick. And he was carrying this sort of smart briefcase. I think he called it an attache case. And he picked it up, put it on his lap, opened it up, vomited into it, <laughs> closed it again, and then got off the tube. And nobody said a word. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what would it take for people on, a, on, on the London Underground to actually start interacting with each other? Um, so, so I guess that was where the original idea came from. But then during the the lockdown, when we were all in our little individual bubbles and, you know, not interacting with, with strangers at all, I started really missing those commuting days. And I started thinking, you know, what would have happened if I had talked to some of those people on the train? Um, you know, and I just, the idea of spending time with strangers, it's suddenly really, really appealing. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's where the idea came from. Oh, and you asked who inspired Iona. Um, Iona really is the woman that I wish I was. <laughs> so she's partly inspired by a poem, uh, When I am old, I will wear purple. 
which is you know all about uh, the joy of of uh, getting older and and not caring anymore what people think of you and uh, and Iona is is a sort of is a wonderfully exuberant 57 year old who describes herself as an it girl who is now a past it girl and she's uh, yeah she's my idol really what i loved about Iona was that she had this wonderful backstory and i think in society today people sort of shunt older people to the side or, I don't know, minimize them, whatever the, the correct way to say that is. And she has this just fabulous backstory. And I think it was a good reminder that most people have fabulous backstories, maybe not as fabulous as Iona's, but still, you know, there's a lot to every individual and they've all accomplished a lot. And it's a good reminder just because we're getting older doesn't mean we haven't had amazing lives. Exactly. And I, I think what Iona teaches us is that, um, you know, whereas people can see older women as as being invisible and irrelevant actually we have so much accumulated life experience and and wisdom and um you know and and actually if you take the time to to get to know somebody of that generation uh you may be very pleasantly surprised absolutely and the power she had just to bring that entire group together and then I don't want to give any kind of spoilers, but what results is just so wonderful. Well, well, what we discover is is that each of those people on the train is is struggling with something, and and that I think is so so true of life. You know, we see the outsides of people, and we assume that sort of their lives are all very sort of happy and successful, but everybody is struggling with something, and that's very true on this train. You know, they they are all they all have their individual. Um, issues. And and as the story unfolds, we get to find out more about those. And Iona starts getting more and more involved. She's one of those people that can't help but meddle. (laughs) I think I'm a bit like that myself. Well, sometimes it's hard not to. And as you said, you know, as you get older, you do have less concern about what other people think, and more of an understanding of how you want to do things and what you feel like is right. And so it's easier, I think, to want to meddle a little bit and be like, well, I've, I've encountered this before. I know what to do, or I think I could help here, you know? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what she does uh, with, with some, uh, some incredible results. Absolutely. And then back to the commuting. First, I can't even imagine somebody vomiting on a train and then getting off and no one saying anything. That's pretty hilarious. And then second, you know, I think with the pandemic, it's amazing the things that we took for granted before that we now sometimes miss. You know, just being able to go sit at a baseball game or in a movie theater or just things that we never thought about how great they were to do until we all sat home for so long and are like, I am ready to be out and about interacting with strangers, having a commute, going places. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's why writing this book made me feel so happy. And I, I think I think that's why people reading the book feel happy is because it reminds us of a time where things were much less complicated. I mean, it's set in 2018 and none of the characters know what's coming around the corner. And yeah, that that time when when we all crowded onto trains um, without masks and and without a care in the world is, is, uh, is, is quite a sort of, you know, a lovely thought now. It really is. My daughter goes to school in New York City, so I've been up there a fair amount and have been on the subway masked, as you just mentioned, in addition to everybody being on the subway masked, is the second anybody coughs or does look a little bit ill, everybody gets pretty worked up. Yeah, there's still an underlying fear, isn't there? It feels like sort of 
it feels like 2018, where the book is set, was a, was a much more innocent time. And I found it very therapeutic writing the book because it just transported me back there. So, you know, I was still writing in the pandemic and, uh, and this allowed me to imagine a world where none of that had happened. Actually, there's a scene at the end. It's not, it's not a spoiler because it's just a, a, you know, a tiny detail, which I loved writing where Piers, uh, one of the characters, um, talks about how uh, somebody has asked him to invest in this tiny little company called Zoom but he doesn't think the technology will ever catch on. <laughs> I loved that part. And I always laugh because at the beginning of the pandemic, when I was trying to get my husband to invest in Zoom, and he's like, oh, it's not going to be around for long. And I was like, oh, I wish we had invested in Zoom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because yeah. it definitely is here to stay. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, what about coming up with the ideas for the rules for commuting? How did you do that? Oh, well, those, those are, uh, were, were my rules, I guess. So, so, uh, so Iona's rules for commuting, I mean, the first one is that you have to have a job to go to. Um, and the significance of that, I think, becomes clear when you, when you read the book. Um, never talk to strangers on the train. That's the, the key one that, uh, that is, uh, is, is broken quite early on and, and leads to, to, uh, to, to all, the, all the ongoing drama. Um, don't consume hot food. I mean, that's, that's quite a crucial one because hot food, as you know, is smelly. So, mm. so if you're in a in a train and somebody is eating a sort of very smelly hot dog or something, it's it's not very uh, not very polite. Uh, never give give up a seat once occupied unless it's for a pregnant lady or somebody who is old or infirm. That's a really tricky one on on the the uh, on the London Underground because. Um, whilst it's polite to give up a, a seat for somebody who's pregnant, what you don't want to do is give up a seat and then discover they're not actually pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is tricky. Yeah, so so that's a that's a tricky one. And then finally, always pack for every eventuality, which uh, which Iona always does. You know, she has absolutely everything you can imagine in in her handbag for sort of whatever emergency might befall. She reminded me of Mary Poppins in that aspect, that she has this bag that no matter what you need, Iona can pull it out. Yeah, and I, I know people like that. You know, there were mothers who always used to make me feel inadequate, you know, where sort of whatever happened, they'd have a Band-Aid or antiseptic cream or, you know, um, a magic marker or whatever, whatever the situation required. And, and I, I always just, you know, had, uh, had something completely useless and irrelevant. Like your wallet, your sunglasses, and your phone, right? That's pretty much what's in my purse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, did you have each character planned out from the beginning, or did you flesh out their storylines as you wrote? Oh, um, I I tend to do a bit of both. So, so when I start a story, I sort of know what the beginning is, and I know what the end is, and I know a few of the key points, and I know roughly who the characters are. But I I like the characters to develop as I write and to sort of help direct the action. And I feel if you pin it down too much before you start, you don't allow any room for the magic to happen, if you see what I mean. I sort of the the most wonderful thing about writing is when every now and again you get to that point where you feel like the story is writing itself and it's nothing to do with you at all. You're just the conduit. You're just the the person on the keyboard. And in order to ever get to that point, you need to you need to leave a certain amount unplanned. I think so, anyway. And then how their stories intertwine together. I assume you approach it from the same way you just described that you have a general idea, but as you're writing, some of that's coming together. 
Yes, exactly, exactly. And um, I love those sort of interconnections and uh you know it's it's that that's that's all all part of the fun is when the individual storylines all start interweaving together and then that changes the course of of you know much of the the action absolutely well who was the hardest to write and who was the easiest to write oh i think i think the uh, easiest to write was um was probably iona because she's She's the one that is closest to my age, and she's probably the one that's most like me, although she's a much more extreme version of me. So, uh, and, you know, I, I felt like she was just great fun as, you know, I, I felt like I, I, I got to know her really well and, and sort of, you know, as, as I wrote, she gained more and more little idiosyncrasies. So, so she was sort of, she was great fun to write. The one I found hardest was possibly uh, Martha is 15 she's a teenager who at the beginning of the book discovers that uh, the very private and inappropriate picture that she she was persuaded to send to a boy she fancies has been shared with the the whole year group on a whatsapp chat and I found her difficult to write purely because I have teenagers myself and it's my greatest fear or one of my greatest fears is that something like that will happen to, to one of them. And they're having to navigate this whole social media sort of world that we never had to deal with when, you know, when, when we were that age. Um, so I found that, yeah, I found that hard to write because it was just, you know, her, her, her life was, uh, is not the one that I would wish on my own children. And that storyline is difficult for a parent. I have teenagers as well. And I've sat through so many events at the school where they're talking about all that and reminding your children and how those things should be handled. And every year, something like that continues to happen and you see it all over the place. And it's just really hard for kids to navigate social media these days. And you were talking earlier about looking at people and and you think they have it all together. But underneath it all, we're all dealing with things. And I think social media for teenagers makes all of that a million times worse because they see all these influencers and other people whose life look perfect and they're thinking well I'm nowhere near that together. Yeah, they it, they they buy into all of that. I think as as we get older, uh, we realize, you know, we're more likely to understand that it's all a bit of a sham and that nobody's life is that perfect. But teenagers often don't realize that they 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 buy into it they think those lives are real and then it just makes them feel inadequate and i really you know i i really i really hurt for them and um you know martha particularly is i mean she's martha's a very awkward teenager she doesn't find being a teenager easy and so she has this obsession with david attenborough and uh, and she uses him as a sort of guide to life. So she she has this sort of David Attenborough narrative in her head that's sort of explaining to her what's going on because she doesn't really understand other teenagers. She's never quite sure what to sort of what the the right uh, right clothes are to wear, what the right language is, who the right people are to to idolize, and uh, and she's constantly sort of trying to work out how to navigate her way through this teenage world. And I think that's true of a, a lot of teenagers. It's not easy. And it's, you know, they, they do have this constant pressure to conform and to, to do the right thing, say the right thing, look the right way. It's hard. 
And the mistakes are so much harder to erase these days. And I think that's the other issue that makes it so much more difficult. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, I, God, I dread to think if I if some of the things that I did when I was that age were still around on the internet, it would be awful. You know, I'm very, very glad they weren't. I agree with that completely. I'm the same way. But I did love Martha's story arc, and I was very happy with the relationship she developed and how they really helped her out. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by intergenerational relationships because, uh, you know, in the old days when my mother was young, you know, she lived in a village where everybody knew everybody else and, and those intergenerational relationships were very common. Whereas these days, quite often, you know, we only really mix with people who are very like us. And I think the great thing about those relationships is that not only can an older person like Iona help Martha with her sort of wisdom and life, life experience, but Martha is able to help Iona feel more relevant and in touch and, um, you know, up to date. So, you know, it's a very symbiotic relationship. It's not a one-way thing. I think that's exactly right. And I think the loss of intergenerational relationships have been something that really does not benefit our kids. I mean, it's such a shame that there isn't more of that today. And I loved that you were highlighting it in your story. Oh, thank you. No, I, it was it was one of the things I enjoyed the most is sort of, you know, I started, I, when I, I started out writing, I wanted a group of characters who were you know, as as different as they could be in terms of age, sex, sexuality, race, um, you know, sort of, which is very representative of London. I mean, London is a real melting pot of all sorts of different types of people with different backgrounds. And, and uh, yeah, and I, I wanted to, to make sure that that, that was uh, that was representative. Well, what about the underground line that you chose? How did you choose Hampton Court to Waterloo? Uh, well, that was the line that I used to take many, many years ago. So I grew up in in a place called East Molsey, um, right by Hampton Court Palace. And Hampton Court was my local station. And that's where Iona lives. And my father used to take that train to Waterloo every day to work and back. And I used to take the same line to Wimbledon, where I went to school, and then back again in the evening. So I knew that line really well. And the, what was so fun about it is that each of the, at the front of the book, there's a little map of the train line. And you can see how each of the different characters gets on at a different stop. And they all get off at Waterloo, but they all get on at different places. And I timed out the train, you know, to see how long it was, you know, between each of the stops. So what was great fun about the designing the plot is that it had to work such that the right, combinations of people came together at the right times and that there was enough time in between each of the stops on each of the journeys for the action to happen. So it was like this sort of great fun little jigsaw trying to work out who was where and you know sometimes you had combinations that just weren't going to work because somebody was you know had to get off at Surbiton and you were the action was happening at at, uh, at New Malden so to speak. So uh, so it was great fun. I hadn't even thought about that part of it, that someone actually has to be on the train for them to be involved in the action. And since I read a galley, I hadn't seen that map. But this morning when I was preparing for this interview, I had my final copy out and I saw that and I loved it. And I was paying attention to where everybody got on and got off. And I was so glad you had included that. Oh, well, that that map I drew right at the very beginning when I first started writing this book, I drew a, 
a, a map which looked almost identical to the one in, in the book, actually, and because that one is based on my very original sketch. And I had it pinned on my noteboard by my, my laptop. And, and that was my sort of reference point. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was one of the, the things I, I enjoyed the most is, is that discipline of having to stick to that train line. Well, I was glad it was the Hampton Court stop because we went to London a couple Christmases ago, pre-pandemic, obviously, and went out to Hampton Court and took the tube. And so I could envision exactly where Iona was getting on. And I just loved that. Ah, did you go to the, did you do the maze at Hampton Court Palace? We did. I just loved all of Hampton Court. I just thought it was fabulous. When we go back again, I definitely want to go to Hampton Court again. Ah, because I used to go to Hampton Court all the time when I was little. And and that I did that maze so many times. So I really wanted to include the maze as part of the story. And I, I loved writing that bit. But what you may have noticed is that in the train that I've written, there are tables and uh, Iona always sits at a table for four. And when I used to take that train, there were tables on it. But um, I retook the train when I was writing the, this book and realized they'd taken the tra- tables away. <laughs> and I was really horrified because I thought I have to have these tables in this story because there's, you know, Iona needs somewhere to put her tea. And, you know, so much, so much happens around the table. So uh, I decided to keep the tables in and in the author's note at the back, what I've done is I've written an apology for anyone who takes a train regularly to say that I have taken some liberties with what Iona would describe as the actualité and have uh, put the tables back on the train that were removed some time ago by by the powers that be. And that's the wonderful thing about, about fiction is that you can sort of correct some of the grievous errors made by, by the town planning people. Exactly. You're like, where did the tables go? (laughs) Well, I'd like to talk quickly about your title and your cover because they are different in the UK and the US. So what was that process like? Oh, you know, one of the things I didn't realize until I started uh, writing novels is the fact that the author has very little influence on the title or the cover. And that was a complete surprise to me. And but it does make sense because as the author, you get so close to the story that you can't imagine what it must be like to be in a bookshop and pick it up for the first time. And your publishers really know the market and know, you know, they, they have a, a bit more distance and are more able to sort of to to make those decisions. So I'm really happy to to leave that job to them. Uh, but in this instance, my UK publisher, my US publisher had j- different ideas about the title. So in the US, it's called Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting. And in the UK, it's called The People on Platform 5. And I think the main reason for that is that in the UK, they felt that the important thing was the community of people. So hence, People on Platform 5. And in the US, they felt that Iona was the real linchpin and and that the title should focus on her. So so it was just a difference of opinion. You know, so it's uh, yeah, I, I find it quite fascinating. Which which do you prefer out of interest? You know, I like them both. I totally get what you're saying, and I do think Iona is the linchpin of the story. But I remember when Mary Laura first told me the title, I was like, what's the name of it? But then once she told it to me, it stuck with me. So I can see where both would be relevant. And then your covers are both so different, but I love both of them as well. 
Yes, I mean they're both very bright and cheerful. Um, they have that in common, but uh, but yes, but other than that, they're they're quite different in uh, in style. But I like, yeah, I like them both. I, I think the the uh, the American one is is very difficult to miss. <laughs> so it doesn't do it justice on a podcast, but it is uh, it is sort of yellow and uh, bright yellow and pink, and it really stands out. And I think that's what I like so much about it because I love covers, and I'm always talking about them. And I think it's such a unique and a great way cover. And the second you see it, I know it's Iona. So I think that's wonderful. Uh, well, I, I hope uh, I hope I hope people will uh, will see and notice it in their bookshops. Certainly, they definitely will. Well, quickly before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, my favorite novel of of uh, the last few weeks is um, Bonnie Garmuse's Lessons in Chemistry. Have you read that yet? I have, and I've also interviewed her, and I really enjoyed the book and loved chatting with her. Oh, it's one of my favorite books for some time, actually. It's, uh, it was uh, just very different from, uh, from anything I've, I've read for a while. And I thought uh, Elizabeth Zott was a fabulous heroine, and 6.30 is possibly my favorite literary character of the last decade. That's what I was just going to say. I loved 6.30. Yeah, I think my my uh, my American editor, uh, who is uh, Pamela Dorman, who is 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 fabulous. Uh, she always says you can never have too much dog. <laughs> I agree with that completely, and I think she's right. I think no story can have too much dog. I'm a huge dog person, so I agree completely. Hooray! <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, Claire, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Al 
Nelson Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.